Now before we turn to these scriptures, I'd like us to once again pray and ask for God's blessing upon the study of the Bible. Father, we do sincerely take the words of this hymn as the confession of our own soul. We thank you for giving your Son to us. And we thank you that he is such an able and such a sufficient, such a perfectly adequate Savior to us in all the extremities of our needs. And even as we sang the hymn and reflected freshly upon all that you have made him to be to us, it did cause some of us shame that we are so faithless to him, that we do not more fully abide with him and more fully partake of the mercies and benefits that he has brought to us. We thank you that you are such a, an immensely generous God in the provisions of the gospel. We pray that as we now turn our minds to the study of the scriptures, that you would show that same largeness of heart and generosity to us, that you would not reward us according to our sins and inconsistencies, but that you would deal with us in the light of your mercy, that you would give to us, even in the understanding of the Bible, that you would give to us generously of illumination, even as you have given generously to us of your Son. We pray that you would take this passage of the Scriptures, which in some ways is filled with things hard to understand, and that you would open it up to us and enable us to understand and that you would cause your word to be dear to us, that your spirit would minister to our hearts. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We come this morning to that passage in Romans chapter 10. Uh, please turn to Romans chapter 10. We are in the middle of what some people consider to be one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. We are squarely in the middle of that passage this morning as we come to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is clearly a continuation of chapter 9, and so if we are to appreciate what is in chapter 10, we must always have the context of chapter 9 at the front of our minds. And so at the sake of being somewhat tedious, I would ask you to please uh, follow with me for just a few moments to review chapter 9 so that it will be fresh in our minds as we come to chapter 10. You remember that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a unit, that they are a section of the Bible where the Apostle Paul sets forth a great amount of information concerning two things, concerning God's relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles and on the one hand, and the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews to each other on the other hand. Beginning in chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2 and 3, Paul expresses his own heart's attitude toward the Jews. They are his kinsmen. They are dear to him. He loves them. His love for them is self-sacrificial. He would willingly give up his own salvation if they could be brought to faith in Christ. And then in verses 4 and 5, Paul sets forth in very concise words something of the blessings of God to the Jews. 
the privileges which God has given to them, not only in the past, but he writes these in the present tense to him. They presently did still have the blessings of God in terms of these wonderful privileges as set forth in verses 4 and 5. And that raises the logical question, if they are anathema, if they are cursed by God, if they are under hardening, if Paul is so anxious for them that he would give up his own salvation for them to be saved, if that is the case, and if they have these tremendous privileges, the question arises, has God failed? Has God's word failed? Have all these promises in the Old Testament failed in the light of the promises on the one hand and the Jews apostatizing on the other? Have the promises failed? Has the word of God come to nothing? Well, in chapter 6 and following, the apostle Paul answers that concern. Absolutely not. The word of God has not failed. It has not come to nothing. And the basis of Paul's argument is this. It has not failed because God never did promise to deal with all of the physical descendants of Abraham. God never did promise to save all of those who are literally and physically Jews. God always did work with some, and he always promised to work with some. And then Paul makes these statements about the doctrine of election, that God has chosen to save some and to pass over others. God has chosen to love some and to hate others. God has chosen some according to the purposes of election, and those purposes of election shall stand. God's word, God's purposes do not fail. And then having made those statements about election in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, the apostle answers two objections to the doctrine of election. In verses 14 through 18, he answers the objection, is this fair? Can God be righteous and choose some and not choose others? And then in verses 19 through 24, he answers another objection to election. And that is, if if this is true, then how can God hold people accountable? If he chooses whom he will to save, how can he hold people accountable? Paul deals with that objection in verses 19 through 24. And then having dealt with those objections, he goes back to the original issue. And that is that God has chosen to save some from among the Jews. And he adds in verse 24 a new element to this section. Not only has God chosen to save some from among the Jews, he has also chosen to save some from among the Gentiles, he says in verse 24. And then in verse 25 through verse 29, he uses the Old Testament to prove that. He uses the Old Testament to prove that God has chosen to save some from among the Gentiles who are not his people, and that he's chosen to take the Jews and to take some of them, not all of them, and bring salvation to them. And then he concludes everything in verse 30. What shall we say then? And he makes these astounding remarks that the Gentiles who did not seek righteousness, that they obtained righteousness through faith. And the Jews who did pursue a law of righteousness did not attain righteousness. Rather, they stumbled at Christ and they did not receive the blessings that were laid before them. Now, having gone through all of that, in in chapter 10, verse 1, it's like Paul's going to start all over again because he begins in chapter 10, verse 1, just where he began in chapter 9, verse 1, 
by giving a statement again of his heartfelt disposition toward the Jews. And then he does the same thing that he did in chapter 1 and chapter 10. After giving his heartfelt disposition toward the Jews in chapter 9, he then stated their condition, how blessed they were. Now in chapter 10, after he again states his heartfelt disposition toward the Jews, he again states their true condition, not any longer in terms of blessing, but in terms of their obstinance. In chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Let us read together Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Paul expresses his affection, commitment to the Jews, and then he expresses their state in terms of blessing. Chapter 10, verse 1, he again expresses his affection and desire for the Jews, and then he also expresses their state, not in terms of blessing now, but in terms of their obstinate refusal to submit to the righteousness of God which is offered through Christ. What I would like us to do this morning is I would like us to look primarily at verses 2 and 3. When we considered chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 and 3, we also considered chapter 10, verse 1. I would not like to repeat that here. So let us just pass over this statement of Paul's desire for them and come immediately to verses 2 and 3 where he describes their present state. He says four things about the Jews as a whole. It's important to appreciate my last, my last phrase about the Jews as a whole. There were many blessed exceptions to what he says. There were many Jews who were converted. There were many priests, as well as many of the ordinary people of the nation of Israel who came to love Jesus as their Savior. He is speaking not about every individual Jew, but he is speaking about the mass of those who, in fact, were Jews. Four things about them. Number one, they have a zeal for God, but not according to truth. Number two, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. Number three, they seek to establish their own righteousness. And number four, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, that may seem like just heavy theological stuff, but it's important that we appreciate what these four things are. And then I would like to try and make several applications to the modern state. These things that Paul said about the Jews in that time are not relegated to ancient history. They are very relevant to things that we see in our modern religious world. So let us look briefly at these four things. Number one, they had a zeal for God which was not according to truth. They exercised a great deal of time and a great deal of energy and a great deal of emotional vigor in their religious pursuits. They were not dullards. They were not passive. They were very zealous. They were very aggressive people in their religious concerns. They were meticulous about their obedience to what they understood God's law to require. They were very meticulous in obedience to the religious customs and traditions that had been handed down to them. Men, if they could, would spend hours of the day studying the Torah. They were willing, the Jews were willing, to suffer great ridicule in order to express their devotion to God. 
They dressed in peculiar ways. They wore their beards in peculiar ways. They ate peculiar foods. And they did not shrink from suffering great ridicule in the eyes of the Gentile world for doing what they considered was pleasing to God. They were strict in maintaining their separation from the Gentiles in terms of marriage. It was a terrible offense for a Jewish boy or girl to marry a Gentile boy or girl. It was an ordinary thing for such a person to be disowned or even considered dead in reference to the family. They were zealous for their religion. And probably the, the, most, obvious ex, uh, the most obvious expression of the extent of their zeal is their willingness to persecute and kill people that they thought were blaspheming their God. Jesus was the victim of the religious zeal, of sincere religious zeal on the part of the Jewish nation. Stephen was the victim not of mere mob rage. He was the victim of fanatical religious zeal. Paul himself was given to such zeal. He was traveling about putting people in prison and killing people because of the incentive of religious zeal. And of course, Paul became the object of such religious zeal when a group of men took an oath to never eat until they had killed the Apostle Paul. And again, they weren't simply fools or fanatics. They were driven by a sense of commitment, zealous commitment to what they considered proper religion to be. They exercised great zeal, but the passage says that their zeal was not according to knowledge. They were full of knowledge of their traditions, but they did not understand the truth of the Bible. They knew a great deal about the facts and details of Old Testament things, but they did not understand the true message of the Old Testament. They understood what the rabbis taught them. They understood what the scholars taught them, but they did not have a proper understanding, a proper knowledge of the truth of God. So that's the first thing. They had a zeal for God, but it was not according to true knowledge. The second is they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Now appreciate how Paul immediately centers on one aspect of their ignorance. They were full of zeal, but it was not according to knowledge. Now, Paul could have taken all kinds of areas where their zeal was not according to biblical truth, but he centers on this one specific area where they were far off base. They were ignorant of many things. Paul, though, takes our mind to the fact that they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, what is the righteousness of God? And I say this may seem like just so much heavy theology to you, but again, it's important that we understand what Paul's talking about. Paul has introduced this subject already, the righteousness of God. He's introduced it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. He's introduced it in chapter 3, verses 21 22, where he speaks about the righteousness of God being given to us apart from the, the works of the law. It's important that we understand this. Paul is saying that this was the crucial error of the Jews. They had lots of errors, but this was the crucial error. They did not understand. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, what is that? The sad thing is, and I hope to deal with this a little bit in the applications later, the sad thing is that many in modern Christendom are equally ignorant of the righteousness of God. 
Many gospel presentations don't even deal with the righteousness of God. If I were to take each one of you aside and force you into a place where you had to give an answer, what is the righteousness of God? There might be some even here who don't know what the righteousness of God is. That ignorance was central and crucial to the damnation of the Jewish nation. We must understand what it is, what the righteousness of God is. So let me, because we've studied this from those other texts, let me just give you these three things by way of review about the righteousness of God. Number one, the term refers to that righteousness which God possesses. It refers to God's own righteousness. It refers to that righteousness which is his, the perfectly right character of God. God himself is absolutely right. He is absolutely righteous. There is no error. There is no moral impurity. He is absolutely whole. His righteousness. It's God's righteousness the text is referring to. God is absolutely righteous both positively and negatively. And again, bear with this. Don't let this be abstract in your mind. What does it mean to be righteous positively? It means always to do, always to think, always to feel, always to be motivated in a positive direction by the right things. What does it mean to be righteous in a negative sense? Well, it means to not do all those things that would in fact be wrong. God is absolutely righteous, both positively and negatively. God is righteous in all that he thinks, in all that he feels, in all that he imagines, in all that he speaks, and in all that he does. The term in the first place refers to that the righteousness which God possesses, the righteousness of God. In the second place, the term refers to God's righteousness as a standard for our judgment. Against what will we be judged in the last day? We'll be judged against God's law. And it is in God's law that God's righteousness is expressed. God's law gives the expression to human beings of what God's own righteousness is. The law requires that we be holy as God is holy. The law requires that we be righteous as God is righteous. The law requires that in all the things that we feel and all the things that we think and all the things that we imagine and all the things that we speak and all the things that we do, we be perfectly righteous as God is righteous. So what does the phrase refer to? In the first place, it refers to his own righteousness. In the second place, it refers to that righteousness which the law of God requires of us. God requires us to be like him. He requires an absolute perfect righteousness, negatively and positively, of all his creatures. The law requires that we be like God. You remember in the past we've talked about what the law requires? It's only when you begin to get into the biblical details that you appreciate how high and lofty the requirements of the law are. You remember the three alls that we talked about? What does the law require? The law requires obedience to all of the law. The law requires obedience with all of the heart. And the law requires obedience all of the time. 
all of the law, all of the heart, and all of the time. All of the law, James chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, he who keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. God requires that all the law be kept. God requires that it be kept with the whole heart. We're to serve the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and so forth. And it requires that the law be kept all of the time. Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. God's law is an expression of God's righteousness. God requires that we be obedient to that law in all of its details, with all of the heart, and all of the time. So what is God's righteousness? It's, what, it's the righteousness which God possesses, number one. And number two, it is that righteousness which the law requires of us, number two. And there is a third thing that we must understand about this phrase, God's righteousness. In the third place, God's righteousness is that righteousness which the gospel offers. It is that righteousness which the gospel offers through faith in Christ. Now look, please, in Romans chapter 3. Well, look in chapter 1, verse 17. In reference to the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1, 17, for therein is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. In the gospel is this declaration, this revelation of the righteousness of God. Look in chapter 3, verse 21. In the previous verses, Paul has made the point that everyone will be judged by the law, that the law will proclaim everyone to be guilty. And then it says in verse 21, but now apart from the law, that is apart from any of our obedience to God's law, apart from the law, a righteousness of God hath been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. The righteousness of God, according to this passage, is said to be given to all those who believe the gospel. You remember from previous studies in Romans chapter 5, Paul expands on this. He talks about Jesus' obedience, Jesus' act of obedience being imputed to us. Jesus' obedience to God is given to us. It is the perfect righteousness of God. Jesus was obedient to God's law in all of its details. He obeyed all the law with all the heart, all the time. We, We've talked about this. I hope you don't weary of thinking this through. It is an amazing consideration that all of Jesus' thoughts, all of Jesus' feelings, all of Jesus' imaginations, all of Jesus' words, all of Jesus' acts, every one of them were in perfect conformity to God's law. He was absolutely righteous. That righteousness of God, that righteousness of Jesus is given to everyone that believes. So when a Christian stands in the judgment and all of his sins, which are real, are upon his own conscience, he is judged on the basis of Jesus' obedience. And he, because he has Jesus' obedience, though he himself is guilty of many sins, 
is accepted because he has the righteousness of God given to him through faith in Christ. Now come back to the passage in Romans chapter 10. It says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is, is a, <clears throat> refers to three things. It refers to that righteousness which God himself possesses. That very same righteousness is what the law requires. And that very same righteousness, that perfect, absolute righteousness, is what is given to us in the gospel. Paul is saying the Jews were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They didn't comprehend any of this. They understood something about the absolute righteousness of God in himself. But they never dreamed that God required that kind of righteousness from them. They were content with what human beings could do in reference to God's law. They didn't understand the degree of righteousness that God required of them. They did understand something of God's righteousness in himself, but they did not comprehend the measure and degree of absolute righteousness that God required of them. And they did not comprehend that this righteousness of God could actually be obtained through faith in the gospel. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God as conceived by the New Testament. So the first thing was they were full of zeal, but not according to knowledge. The second thing was that all the things they were messed up on, this was crucial. They did not understand. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. The third thing that he says about them is that they sought to establish their own righteousness. And Paul is making, I think, a purposeful contrast. They didn't understand God's righteousness, and they were trying to establish their own righteousness. They were trying to stand it up, the word would literally mean. They were trying to make it stand. They wanted their righteousness to be established, fixed, erected perhaps like a monument. Now, try to think this through. Think what they might say if they had read Paul's epistle and they had read this section. Think of what they might say. We're trying to establish our own righteousness. They might have asked rhetorically, how can this be? We are the people of God. We are basing everything upon the law of God. We study the Torah. We, st we, are, we are known. We are renowned for our meticulous study of the statements of the Old Testament. How can it be even conceived that there is a difference between the righteousness which God requires and the righteousness which we are seeking to establish? Well, there are some obvious differences from Paul's standpoint and from the Christian standpoint between the righteousness of God and the righteousness which they were seeking to establish on the other hand. And I would like us to look at four of those differences. Four of the differences between God's righteousness, which he requires, and that righteousness which the Jews were seeking to establish. Four differences. In the first place, their righteousness was different in terms of the standard. What is the standard of God's righteousness? Well, it's obvious. The standard of God's righteousness is his law. You want to know what righteousness is from God's standpoint? You go to the law. You go to the summary of the law and the Ten Commandments. You go to all the ex explanations and details of the law throughout the Bible. That is the standard for righteousness. But that was not true for them. As much as they would say it was true, it was not true for them. They gave lip service 
to the law as written by Moses. They gave lip service to the law as explained by the prophets, but in practice they denied it. They distorted the law by their interpretations. They added to the law by their traditions, and they neglected the law by their mixed-up emphases. Now, this is something that must be comprehended because there are a lot of people in the religious world today who are doing exactly the same thing. They proclaim loudly that we are God's people. We are following the book. But in fact, they distort the book by their interpretations. They add to the book by their traditions, and they neglect the book by their peculiar emphases. The Jews distorted the law by their interpretations. That's the whole basis of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is continually saying to them, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said by them of old, but I say unto you. Jesus is not taking what Moses said and making a contrast between Moses and himself. Jesus is the son of God. He's not going to put himself at odds with Moses and with God. He has just said in the introductory part of the Sermon on the Mount that he's not come to destroy, but he's come to fulfill, and that anybody that would disobey or teach others to disobey the smallest details of the law was least in the kingdom of heaven. So you don't expect Jesus to come after that statement and make a contrast between himself and Moses. He's making a contrast between himself and those rabbis and scholars who interpreted the law for the people. They said thus and thus, but I say unto you. They distorted the law by the way they interpreted the law. And like some religious bodies in the present time, they made it very clear to the people that they weren't competent to understand the law by themselves. They had to go to the writings. They had to go to the religious leaders. They had to go to the sancti, to the to the sanctioned rabbis in order to get the proper understanding of the law. Well, when they got that proper understanding, they were very far removed from what the Bible actually said. They distorted the law by their interpretations. They added to the law by their traditions. You read the gospel accounts of what, what the Pharisees did, and they have lots of stuff in there you'll never find in the law of Moses. They had certain laws about how far you could walk on the Sabbath day. Nothing like that in the law of Moses. There are very few details about Sabbath observance in the Old Testament. But the Jews had multitudes of details about Sabbath observance. They had laws about washing your hands before meals, and they had rules about walking on the other side of the road from the Gentiles, and a whole host of things which they were meticulous to obey, but were found nowhere in the law of God. They distorted the law by their interpretation. They added to the law by their traditions, and those traditions, by the way, soon became much more important than God's law itself. But not only did they distort the law and add to the law, they took away from the law by their emphasis. And please turn to Matthew chapter 23 for a statement to this effect. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and anise and cumin and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. But these you ought to have done and not to have left the other undone. What were they doing? They were putting such an emphasis upon obscure details of God's law that by emphasizing them, they quite practically 
excused themselves from obedience to the main and obvious things of God's law. They were putting so much emphasis upon external details, going out and taking these little, little leaves of the herbs in their garden, chopping them up into ten pieces and making sure that God got his tithe. They were so meticulous about that that they were, in practical terms, denying the more major issues of God's law. They, would, they could cry high and long that they were obedient to God's law, but in fact, they distorted the law by their, by their interpretations, they added to the law by their traditions, and they neglected the main parts of the law because of twisted emphases in their obedience. There are lots of people that today say the same thing. We are given to God's word, but in fact, they distort it by their official interpretations, they add to it by their traditions, and they neglect it by a perverse emphasis. So what was the difference? The first difference is the Jews had a righteousness which is according to a different standard. It wasn't really God's law, even though they said so. The second difference was that, their righteous, that, their, that theirs was different in terms of motive. And I'm going to shorten this so that we can get to the applications. Now, just, just let me make some explanatory remarks. The motive for, for God's righteousness, the motive that men are to have for seeking God's righteousness is his honor. In the Sermon on the Mount, though, when Jesus is contrasting the righteousness which he required and the righteousness which the Pharisees were satisfied with, again and again, this was the point of contrast. Their motive is to be seen by men. Their motive was to do that which was pleasing to the religious community. Their motive was to do that which would gain the approval of the church. He says, you must do all those things in secret with a motive that is solely to please God. They would fast, not for God, but for men to see them. They would give alms, not for God, but for men to see them. They would pray, not for God, but for men to see them. That was their driving motive, to be well-received by men. But he says, Jesus says, your righteousness must be different. Your righteousness must be motivated by this, a concern to please God only. So theirs was different in terms of its standard. Theirs was different in terms of its motive. In the third place, theirs was different in terms of its emphasis. They emphasized conduct that could be accomplished merely with the body. Jesus says real righteousness is that which emphasizes internal holiness. Obviously, where there is internal holiness, there'll be external obedience. But the Pharisees were concerned only about the obedience. They would be satisfied if they did not use their hand to kill someone and their heart was full of anger. That would be fine with them. That would be keeping the law as far as they were concerned. Jesus said, no, you've got the wrong focus. You're, focus. you're focusing upon what can be done with the body and the mouth. You should be focusing upon the soul and upon the heart. So their righteousness was different in terms of its standard. It was different in terms of its motive. It was different in terms of its emphasis. And in the third and last place, it was different in terms of its character. God's righteousness is perfect. Their righteousness is not. What is the character of divine righteousness? It is absolutely perfect. The character of their righteousness was flawed a thousand times, and that was satisfactory to them. You remember Jesus telling the parable of the publican and the Pharisee? And the Pharisee blesses God in the temple, and he thanks God that I am not as other men. And then he goes on to list all of his wonderful virtues. And they were virtues in terms of externals. But his, the character of his righteousness was that it was better than other men, full of flaws, 
not absolutely perfect, but better than other men. The righteousness which the law requires is the righteousness of God, an absolutely perfect righteousness. They never dreamed of coming close to that standard. They never dreamed of actually obtaining a righteousness of that character. They were satisfied to simply say we are better than the others. They were satisfied to give such external obedience to their laws that they could say we are morally better than the Gentiles. We are separate from the Gentiles. They don't keep the law. We do keep the law. We are better than the Gentiles. That was the character of their righteousness. They were satisfied with that. They thought that would please God. But the righteousness of God is absolutely perfect. They did not understand what God required. That righteousness that they were so determined to set up of their own was radically different than God's righteousness. Even though they could quote the Ten Commandments, even though they could go to chapter and verse for what they thought you should do, their own righteousness was radically different than God's righteousness. The fourth thing that Paul says about them is they would not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Now you notice at this point that Paul is not speaking as if ignorance allows one to be guiltless. This is the language of rebellion. This is not the language that would be used. If, some people say, well, if you're ignorant, what can you do? Paul doesn't use that kind of language. Paul uses the language of rebellion. They would not submit to the righteousness of God. They rebelled against the righteousness of God. Ignorance is no excuse for disobedience. They rebelled against the righteousness of God. They were stubborn. They were proud of their traditions. They were proud that they were better than the Gentiles. They were proud of their ancient heritage. Could so many centuries of God-fearers be wrong? When the gospel preachers came on the scene, when Jesus came on the scene, when the apostles began to preach in explicit and clear language that everybody would be condemned by God's law, that the only hope was to have the obedience of Jesus given to you through faith in Christ, they refused that. They would not accept these statements about the righteousness of God. They refused. They rebelled. And God hardened them. And God damned them. Because they would not be right on this one crucial point. Now that's the fourfold statement which Paul makes about the condition of the Jews. It is a sad contrast to compare the details of these four statements with the details of all the things that he says in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. But if you are to understand the present state of the Jews, those two passages, the one stating their privileges and the other stating their rebellion, those two passages have to be understood. Well, now let me take the remainder of our time. I would like us to look at several applications of this text to ourselves and to modern Christendom. Some of the applications, I believe, are quite obvious, but I would like to state them nonetheless, hopefully so they would be clear in our minds. And I've not listed these in any particular order. The first application that I would like to point out is obvious. Zeal and sincerity are not enough for salvation. Zeal and sincerity are not enough for salvation. That is the point of Romans chapter 9, verse 31, 
That is the point of Romans chapter 10, verse 2. They were full of sincerity. They were full of sincerity that led to zeal. That was not enough for their salvation. I think that most of us are familiar with Jesus' statements to the same effect, but I would like us nonetheless to read them again. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Paul is referring to Jews who would not believe the gospel. Their zeal and their sincerity was not enough to bring them salvation. Jesus is referring perhaps to Jews or to Gentiles, but he's referring to people who became followers of his. Different class of people than Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about Jews who would not follow him. Jesus is talking about people who did follow him. But Jesus makes the same point. Sincerity and zeal were not sufficient for salvation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who calls me Lord and Master, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy name, and by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Now just notice the obvious points of comparison. These were zealous religious disciples of Jesus. I put that phrase all in quotation marks. They were people who called Jesus Lord. They were people who cast out demons in his name. They performed miracles and powers and signs in Jesus' name. They were zealous. There's no evidence that they were insincere. But their zeal and their sincerity were not enough to satisfy God. Their fault was not that they were insincere, not that they had insufficient levels of energy. Their fault was they were zealous, but not according to truth. They would not be obedient to the will of Jesus' Father who was in heaven. It's the same problem that Paul is identifying with these Jews who would not be his disciples. It's the same issue. They were both zealous, they were both sincere, but in each case, it was a zeal that was not according to biblical truth. Religious, yes. Full of biblical terminology, yes. Very effective to other people to see, yes. Did it look persuasive, yes. But it was not adequate to gain their salvation. Now the world, in our world, is full of people that really believe this. That if you're just sincere in seeking after God, everything will be fine. They really believe this. They believe that the Bible is too large and too complicated, that there are so many thoughts about God in the world and all the religions of the world must have some elements of truth in them. How could anybody really know the ultimate things of life anyway? God is a just God. If you're just sincere, and if you just be zealous according to what you know about God and be earnest and sincere and zealous, the merciful God who knows the heart and knows the intentions, God will be merciful to you if you just be serious with him, if you just be sincere in what you believe and so forth. Well, some people believe that. And in the Christian world, some people have a great zeal for evangelism. 
And some people have a great zeal for miracles and healings and signs and wonders. And some people have a great zeal for good works and social concerns and concerns for the poor. They give over any doctoral considerations because they believe if you're just sincere, just zealous, according to what you believe to be true, everything will be fine. And some of those people are very impressive. Some of those people are so zealous that they accomplish a great deal in the world. You can imagine those people that Jesus was referring to, all their signs and their miracles and their casting out demons, those would be impressive folks to be around. There are a lot of people in the modern world that are religiously impressive. But it does not impress God. And in the final day, when everyone is judged against God's righteousness, all of that zeal and all of that sincerity will prove to be very much like filthy rags. It will not make any positive impression upon God in the last day because it will be infinitely below the standard. It will be infinitely below the standard of God's perfect and absolute righteousness. Zeal is a wonderful thing. Sincerity is to be desired. But they are thoroughly inadequate as a basis for acceptance with God. And whenever you see people that are full of zeal and full of sincerity, while there may be something admirable about that, the real issue is whether that zeal and sincerity are according to truth. Because if they are not in the last day, they will account for nothing. Now, the second implication is this, that doctrinal error and doctrinal ignorance will damn the soul. Doctrinal error or doctrinal ignorance will damn the soul. And nobody wants to hear that. We come to church this morning, we'd like to have something inspirational for our hearts. Nobody in the modern world outside of conservative evangelicalism wants to hear that because, because they just don't want to hear that. But it's important that even we who need the comfort of the gospel and even we who need inspirational thoughts from the Bible, it's important that we not lose track of this truth. The doctrinal error or doctrinal ignorance damns the soul. I don't mean to say that every doctrinal error damns the soul. There are a lot of areas of the Christian truth that are not so clear. There are a lot of disagreements among Christian people. It's not that just every error damns the soul. But error, doctrinal error, or ignorance. We, we always want to think that the people who are ignorant are somehow safe, that the people who are ignorant are not going to be culpable. But the fact is that error and ignorance of things essential to the gospel damn the soul. We must not think of doctrinal error as a slight matter, but we do. But we must not think of doctrinal error as a slight matter. We must not shrink from those who would call us narrow-minded and bigoted because we believe that doctrinal purity is of high esteem. One of the writers made this statement that no road to destruction has ever been more thronged no road to hell has, never been, has ever been more crowded. No road to destruction has ever been more thronged than that road of false doctrine. He's right. He went on, the same writer goes on to say that error is both a shield over the conscience and a blinder over the eyes. Do you appreciate what he's saying? That error is both a shield to the conscience and a blinder to the eyes. Here you've got somebody that does come to some extent, comes to grips with the fact that he is not morally pure. That he needs God. That he's not sufficient to carry on with his life. He needs God. What does doctrinal error do to that person? 
Well, it shields his conscience in the first place. It makes him think, well, yes, everything's not good with me and I'm not pure and everything else, but I'm fine. But I'm fine because I'm of this group or I've done this thing. I'm fine. Doctrinal error shields the conscience. And doctrinal error is like a blinder to the eyes. When a person might become sensitive, when a person might begin to, to ask, what must I do to be right with God? Doctrinal error comes in and says, you're already right with God. No problem. You've been baptized. You've walked your aisle. You've done this. You've done that. You're, you're a member of this group. Doctrinal error shields the conscience. It pacifies the conscience when the conscience should be raging. And doctrinal error blinds the eyes that when the soul might be desirous of the path to heaven, doctrinal error comes along and blinds the eyes so that it cannot see the true path. Well, we do live in a day when doctrinal exactness is depreciated. We live in a day when, doctrinal ex when zeal is honored more than doctrine. We lived in a day when truth is judged more often by the standards of emotional self-authentication than by the Bible. Isn't that true? People will judge what's true more on the basis of what they feel about it, emotional self-authentification. They will judge what is true on the basis of how it strikes them, how they feel about it, as opposed to whether or not it's exactly in line with the canons of the Bible. Well, that's the kind of day we live in. And because we do live in such a day, it's very important that we appreciate the implications of this passage. Doctrinal error, though you may feel about it very sincerely, you may accept it very heartily because it just seems right. Doctrinal error damns the soul. And doctrinal error that is coupled together with sincerity is doubly damning. It is amazing to me that we live in a time, because of what I just said a moment ago, that we actually live in a time when prominent evangelical writers endorse Roman Catholicism as if it is just another legitimate branch of Christianity. Please don't take this as, as bashing anybody. It's just important that we understand what the scriptures say. It is amazing to me that some prominent evangelical writers are speaking of Roman Catholicism and evangelical Christianity if, as if they are different only in some details, but the same in substance. It seems to me that there is nothing in the modern evangelical, I'm sorry, the modern Christen, Christian world that is more parallel to the Judaism of Jesus' day than Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism and the Judaism of Jesus' day are point after point after point similar. They both have the Bible and use biblical language. They both require that the Bible be understood in terms of sanctioned teachers. They both add to the Bible that which is contrary to the Bible. They both say they have two sources of authority, the Bible and tradition. They both require religious works to be saved. They both deny that Jesus alone is a sufficient ground for salvation. They both deny that Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. Both are full of zeal for God, which is not according to knowledge. Both fall under the curse of Romans chapter 1, I'm sorry, of Galatians chapter 1, of being another gospel. And both are worthy of the compassionate concern which Paul expresses in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Over and over and over again, you find the points of similarity. And I do, again, I don't say this to speak hard words. And if you've 
You know that is not our custom in this place to single people and groups out and attack them. But Paul is addressing something that is vitally important for the present day and we need to see its implication. We don't have a lot of people that we deal with who are caught up in the Judaism which Paul is describing here. But we do know huge numbers of people that are caught up in almost exactly the same thing with a different name that are ignorant of the righteousness which God requires. And they're going about seeking a righteousness that is their own. And they are delighted to be satisfied with zeal, even though that zeal is not according to knowledge. Zeal and knowledge, I'm sorry, zeal and sincerity are not adequate for salvation. Error and zeal are damning. You look at some of the people that are renowned as saints in the Christian world. You look at Albert Schweitzer, who was full of zeal for good works. You look at Mother Teresa, who was full of zeal for good works. One a Protestant, one a Catholic. Will such people enter into heaven? Will Cardinal Sin of the Philippine Islands, who is renowned by many as a great Christian leader, will such people enter into heaven? Well, if zeal and sincerity are the canons, the answer is yes. But if belief in the biblical gospel are the canons, Albert Schweitzer denied the divinity of Jesus. These others that I've mentioned accept systems that are diametrically opposed to the scriptures. Is Galatians 1 true or not? Is Romans 10 true or not? Such people will not enter the kingdom of heaven because doctrinal error damns the soul. And I do believe that there are some who sit in this place from time to time who need to give this very serious consideration. Do you really understand the righteousness of God? Do you really understand what it requires? Do you really understand that the gospel offers it? Do you really understand that? Or are you just kind of caught up in a blur of religious terminology and stuff and really don't comprehend the biblical gospel? Ignorance damns the soul. The third application is this. Gospel presentations must stress the need for God's righteousness. Gospel presentations, whether we're talking about books, whether we're talking about tracts, whether we're talking about you witnessing to your neighbor, whether we're talking about sermons, gospel presentations must emphasize the need for God's righteousness. Now think through this with me. What is central to the book of Romans? Now, the book of Romans is probably the most full, the most systematic, the most clear presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. What is central to the first section of the book of Romans? Well, several things. Sin and wrath are, cent are central. Human sin and God's wrath in chapters 1 and 2. The law is central everywhere. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter... The, the law is central everywhere throughout Paul's writings. I'm sorry, throughout this gospel book of Romans. The judgment of God is central in this presentation. The work of Christ is central, especially in chapter 3 and the implications of that in chapter 5 and chapter 6. But at the heart of all of this and connected to everything that has been said so far, central to all of that is this righteousness of God. 
Look again at chapter 1 and verse 17. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is revealed a righteousness of God. The gospel declares and reveals both both in terms of words and in terms of experience, the gospel sets forth and applies the righteousness of God. In, Rev- in chapter 3, when Paul comes to the very heart of what the gospel is, he defines it in terms of this giving of the righteousness of God through faith. That is central to the biblical presentation of the biblical gospel. But the question that 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 we have to ask ourselves is what is central to the ordinary, modern, evangelical presentations of the gospel? Well, you know what's central. God's love is central. Jesus' death is central. The forgiveness of sins is central. And everlasting life, happy life now and abundant life now and life to come, those are the things that are central. Those things are wonderful. Those things are not in any way to be depreciated by what I'm saying. They're full. Those things are full of of most important ideas that must be set forth. But you hardly ever find anything significant about God's righteousness in these gospel presentations. Forgiveness is only part of the blessing. Forgiveness will not get anyone to heaven. Forgiveness leaves you in a morally neutral position. But God requires that you be righteous. It's not enough that your sins be removed. That won't satisfy God's law. God's law requires you to tell the truth. The simple fact that you have been forgiven for not telling the truth doesn't give you the virtue of telling the truth. God's law requires positive obedience. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven, but that won't get you to heaven. Forgiveness is a central blessing of the new covenant. Its importance cannot be overestimated, but it is not the central issue of the gospel. The central issue of the gospel is how you can be right before God's law. And that requires an understanding of God's righteousness, and it requires the reception of God's righteousness through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, as Paul preached it, centered upon the need and the gift of the righteousness of God. And modern gospel presentations don't. That's wrong. That was the central error that Paul identifies in reference to the Jews' apostasy. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand that God required this kind of righteousness. They didn't accept the fact that Jesus gave this kind of righteousness And so they were quite content and quite satisfied and quite secure to establish their own because they just didn't understand what God really did require of them. Now, there are many sad results of this type of preaching which does not emphasize sin and wrath and the law and the righteousness of God. There are many sad consequences. One of them is that many unconverted people hear that preaching and they really don't understand what God requires of them. They go away with the idea that if they will say a prayer or raise their hand or walk forward or be sincere in asking for forgiveness, that they'll do all, that's what God requires of them. That's hardly what God requires of them. 
God requires that they perfectly obey his law. That's what God requires. The raising of the hand, the pushing aside the emotional reluctance and forcing yourself to walk down an aisle, or even the, the security of the private prayer in the bedroom, those are not the things that God requires. God requires obedience to his law, and modern preaching doesn't, doesn't inform people of that. The wonder of the gospel is that God requires obedience to his law, and though you can't give it, the gospel will give it to you. But we must never allow people to think that a sincere prayer is what God requires. God requires righteousness. He requires his righteousness. He requires obedience to the law with all of the heart and all of the details, all of the time. There's only one hope of such righteousness. It's to be found in Jesus. And any gospel presentation that makes people think that all they need to do is pray a bit or be sincere is, is fundamentally deficient. People must go away struck with the fear that God requires something that they can never give. Anybody can pray. Anybody can walk an aisle. God requires something that none of them can muster themselves up to do. It's given through the gospel. Another sad implication of this type of preaching is that many who do become Christians, though in ignorance, simply do not appreciate the wonder and the glory and the security of the righteousness of Jesus given to us. And they go about their life going back and forth as to these matters of security and all the rest. They don't appreciate the glory of the gospel, even though they're saved by it. What a sad thing. And another sad consequence of this kind of preaching is that many professing Christians do not appreciate what God still requires of them. God required that they obey his law and they were damned because they couldn't. If they believe the gospel, wonder of wonders, the righteousness of Jesus is given to them and they are declared accepted. But God still requires perfect obedience to his law. The point is, that where this kind of deficient preaching it takes place, people never go away with the sense that God's law is fixed. They go away with the idea that I can be forgiven, then everything's free, and I don't have to worry about anything. The fact is God's law stands. You couldn't, you couldn't obey it in the first place, so you're damned by it. You receive the righteousness of Jesus, now you stand before it justified. It's still there. You still obey it. And we're still called upon to give all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our time to all the details of the law because it is a requirement of God. Another application of this passage is that all religious ideas and actions must be judged by truth. All religious ideas and actions must be judged by the Bible. There is much zeal for God today that is attractive and is attracting huge multitudes of people. There is something that is magnetic about sincere zeal. You see somebody that's full of sincerity and zeal, and there's something that's, there's something that's attractive to that. There's something that's noble about that, especially if it involves measures of self-denial. There's, there's something that's appealing to see somebody in that position. There is a great deal of zeal for God which is attracting multitudes. But most of it is not according to knowledge. And we have to exercise discernment. And again, as was said earlier, we must not shrink back from people calling us narrow-minded when we say, what does the scripture say about this religious act or about this religious idea? 
We must not be like those who are condemned in this passage, who are full of zeal, but not according to knowledge. There are people who show their zeal in all these kinds of ways. There are people that make great sacrifices. There are people that mutilate their bodies. There are people that give themselves to long periods of fasting in order to obtain God's blessings. We are always hearing about, and now in, in the seasons coming before us, we'll hear more about people that make pilgrimages to shrines at great personal cost in order to have God's blessing. There are people on the television in multitudes that are healed. You see on the television multitudes that receive the Spirit and are filled with joy, and others who are slain in the Spirit and wake up with incredible blessing. We always hear of those who are performing miracles or who report miracles. There are people who stand up and make these wonderful and glowing announcements of how Jesus came to them and spoke to them and helped them and comforted them or gave them some kind of personal direction or how some saint did the same things. There are multitudes who are seeing those things and identifying with the people who present them and finding in themselves something that resonates and they're coming, they're quote, coming to Christ in multitudes because of these things that are presented. And those of us who love God and those of us who want to know God and be useful to God and to know the power of God in all the ways that are legitimate, some of us find something of that attractive. Now, I don't mean that we find the stupidity attractive. I don't mean that we find the obvious charlatans attractive, but where you see people that are not apparently kooks, who are full of zeal, who are full of joy, who are full of usefulness, who are influencing large multitudes of people, there's something in that that touches us. We want that too. We want to be useful to God in all the ways that God would have us to be. And therefore, it's very important in the light of all this zealous stuff that's being promoted and in the light of the innate sense of desire that the true Christian has to know God in all the fullness of the dimensions that he lays out for us, it is very important that we be willing to bring all religious ideas and all religious practices to the judgment of the Bible and see whether or not they are just zeal and just sincerity, which should be avoided, or whether they are the very things of God. Much of what goes on in the circles that I've just identified are truly fraudulent, truly fraudulent. In fact, there are being some exposés, maybe some of you have seen them on, on prime television programs where some of these evangelists are being exposed as liars, being exposed as thieves. I'm glad to see it. But it's not all insincere charlatans. There are some people that are engaged in some of these so-called miraculous things that are very sincere, very earnest. Things have really happened to them. Well, we must not be led down the path of thinking that if it really happened to them, if it really happened to them, it's right. If something was really true and full of zeal and happened to them, actual, not true, that therefore it's right. It's not necessarily right. Satan does transform himself into an angel of light. What are said in these circles about being slain in the spirit? And what does the Bible say about being slain in the spirit? The Bible doesn't say anything about being slain in the spirit. 
So whenever you have these people that are doing these wonderful things and saying it's being slain in the spirit, just disregard it. That's not a biblical phenomenon. That's garbage. And that's what it is, and it must be identified as such. Don't watch that stuff and go away thinking, are we missing it? The Bible doesn't speak about it, so you're not missing it. It's not something that God endorses. What does the Bible say about healing? Does the Bible say what they say? Does the Bible say that healing and being healed is the normal experience of the life of faith? Clearly not. Clearly not. Does God heal? Absolutely. Are we to pray for healing? Absolutely. Is it the normal life of faith? Clearly not. When Paul deals with Timothy, who is full of oft of his many infirmities, what does Paul say to Timothy? He doesn't say, lay hands on yourself. He doesn't say, wait until I come and lay hands on you. He doesn't say, seek out a healing service. He told Timothy to use medicinal means that were at his disposal. He didn't hold out the promise that I'll come and I'll lay hands on you and be fine. Or exercise your faith and you'll be fine. When Paul is speaking to the general Christian world in the, Roman, in the epistle to the Romans, not any longer to an individual named Timothy, does he say that if you are a child of the king and full of the spirit and have faith, that the effects of the curse will be canceled out in your life and you'll be well? No. He says, even we who have the first fruits of the spirit groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of the body. The hope is not that being full of the spirit and full of faith will make you well and that until the day of your death you'll be, you'll be oblivious to the effects of the curse. No, the people of God are going to suffer sickness and illness and tragedy like the rest, except we have hope except God will work all things together for good, and except we will finally be delivered from wrath and brought into life. But in the present state, we're not guaranteed that if we would just have faith and go to the right meetings and have the right experiences, all that's... No. Are those men right when they make those claims that if you'll just believe and just come to this and just send your money and just put your hands on the television? No, they're not right. They're sincere, maybe. They're certainly zealous. But it's not according to truth. And all religious ideas and all religious practices must be brought to the bar of truth. What about the methods that are being employed to bring multitudes to Jesus? Don't you, who are Christians, don't you watch some of this stuff and, and find yourself thinking, maybe we should do that too. It's not because you want to be fools, but because you'd like to see those results. You'd like to see those multitudes of people streaming the aisles. You'd like to see people weeping and confessing Jesus and supposedly having a life changed. And you look at the power team. You look at the rock stars. You look at the appeals that are made to the middle class. That, you know, you'll have a better life and more money and a happier marriage. What does the Bible say about that? People stand up and say the, the rock stars and the rock music, they work. You present the gospel in that context, it works. It touches the young people where they are. It speaks to them in ways that they understand. It constrains them to believe. It would always be important for us to say, what does the Bible say about methods? And the passage you should always go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1 following, where Paul speaks about his own determination to eschew the things that would work in order to follow a method that makes the effect clearly from God and from no other source. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, 
declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now that language is referring to the rhetoric of the times. It's referring to, to Greek rhetoric. It's referring to, to polished, proper, cogent, persuasive ways of speaking. That which was typical of the orator of the days of Paul. That which moved the masses. That which was known for having its effect. Paul says, I won't do that. I will not come to you in that way. I will not come to you using the media of the times in the Greek world. I will not come to you using that which is accepted and which is persuasive and which is the way to turn the multitudes. I will not. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why would Paul not resort to those things that were proven to be effective? Why was Paul determined to eschew Greek rhetoric? Why was he determined to simply speak in plain words that slaves and noblemen alike could understand? Why was he willing to, unwilling to do the one and determined just to simply speak? It was obvious from, his, from this passage why he was determined. He did not want to influence anyone by carnal means. At the end of the day, when the sermons were over, when the sweat was dried, when the music had ended, if anyone believed the gospel, Paul wanted it to be obvious that they believed it because the power of God had taken the plainness of preaching and converted the soul. What would Paul say? To somebody who comes along and says, oh, you've got to have the rock music, man. You've got to speak to those kids where they are. You've got to touch their emotions. You've got to constrain them to believe. You've got to break through their apathy with music. Paul would say, I will not. I will not persuade those kids on carnal means. I will not whip up their animal passions and draw them to some point of conclusion. And at the end of the day, they will all say, oh, I'm so stirred by the music. I will not. I will speak to them in the words of plain speaking. And if anyone is converted, at the end of the day, they will be amazed that God has affected their soul. How are we to, how are we to judge these religious things that are being pressed upon us? We're not to be impressed by zeal. We're not to be impressed by sincerity. Nor are we to be impressed with apparent results. We're to be governed by truth. Now, most of us should be more zealous. Most of us fail at the point of zeal. But zeal by itself is no virtue. We must be zealous according to truth and not fall under the condemnation of this passage. The last application that I would like to make is to refer you to an application that has been made before, but we would be abusing the passage if it was not reminded here. Election is major to this whole sweep of Paul's thought. God chooses some and doesn't choose others. But as you've heard remarked before, that is no damper to Paul's compassion for lost people. It is not a retarding influence to his prayers. My desire and prayer to God is that they should be saved. Paul understood that God's electing choices are his choices. And Paul understood also that God had promised to answer prayer 
God had promised to God's people to be brought forth by the word of God, Paul would not allow himself to, to wade in the doubt of things that were re not revealed. He would not wade in the mire of doubt about elective purposes which God had not revealed. He was determined to act on what was clearly revealed to him. He was called to pray. He was called to feel. He was called to have compassion. He was called to preach, and so he would. An election was no hindrance. And the other part of that story is that election, the knowledge that God chooses some and does not choose all, should be no damper on the desire of anyone that wants to be a Christian. You see, we, like Paul, must not get bound in the mire of doubt concerning things which God has not revealed. God has not revealed who the elect are. We don't get bogged down in the mire of what is not revealed. We must stand on the certainty of what is revealed. And it is revealed that all that come unto me I will in no wise cast out. It is revealed that anyone that wants Jesus may have him. It is revealed that this righteousness that God requires is offered to everyone that believes the gospel. So don't get bogged down in what is unrevealed. Believe what is clear. You may come to Christ. Everyone here is invited to come to Christ on the basis of biblical authority. Everyone here can, with humility of face, turn their heart to God and say, Oh God, I come on the basis of your promise. I come with my need. I come because you've promised that you will cast none away who come to you. And if the devil starts putting thoughts into your mind, am I elect, am I not? Then you say to your mind and to the devil, Jesus has said, all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Base your hope on what Jesus has said, not on the basis of what is unrevealed. Well, may God be pleased to help us more and more abide the wonderful spirit of the Apostle Paul. Let us stand and pray together. Our God and our Father, we acknowledge that, that we are often perplexed and confused because of the times in which we live and because of what men set before us, because of the apparent zeal and sincerity that so many seem to have who walk in paths different than our own. And we thank you, our God, that you have given us the Bible. We thank you that we are not, that we are not simply given over to every idea that sincere and zealous men throw at us, that we have the scriptures to direct our paths, we have the scriptures to identify what is right to us. And we ask our Father that you would please help us to be discerning in the times in which we live. We pray, Father, that you would be merciful to those multitudes that we know and those larger multitudes that are unknown to us, that you would be merciful to those who are ignorant of the righteousness of yourself, who are ignorant of what you require, who are ignorant of what you offer in the gospel, who will not submit to it, who seek to establish their own. People that are blinded and damned because of error, we plead with you that you would have mercy upon them. Some are in our families, some are in our extended circles of friendship, and we plead with you that you would please have mercy upon them. We pray that you would give us the disposition of Paul for them, that we would pray for them and yearn for them and hope in you for them. 
Please grant us, Father, that we would have a proper perspective on doctrine, that we would hold to it dearly, and, and that we would believe everything that is written, and that we would act upon all that we know. Father, we plead with you for people that are in this room who have not yet obtained the righteousness of Christ. Please make them to see how far short they fall of your requirements. And please help them, our Father, this very day to come to Christ and that you would give them, we pray, that righteousness of yourself through him. We ask our God that you would help us to more appreciate the Bible and to appreciate even these doctrinal passages. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.